At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Leslie Picker. Jim Cramer has the morning off. The Bulls were hoping for a, a sub-5% core PCE print first of the year, and we got it. Futures add to gains, even as we have more double-digit losers in retail. Uh, maybe some month-end positioning ahead of a long weekend. Our roadmap this morning goes with a possible winning week. All three indices on track for gains uh, 3 to 4%. The S&P poised for its first weekly gain in 8 Plus, for those on inflation watch, signs that price increases could be slowing. The Fed's preferred inflation gauge did rise 4.9% last month. And a retail roundup with the consumer in focus, Costco, Gap, Ulta, and Big Lots among the names reporting. We're going to start with the broader markets on track for their first weekly gains uh, since March. We've talked a lot about some of the ups and downs regarding different sectors. But uh, Lipper does say, David, first equity inflow in seven weeks as well. Uh, it's that time, you know, uh, fund flows, rebalances, got a lot of people not willing to take any risk at this point, but that does have or tends to potentially have a positive impact as we sort of near the end of the, uh, of the month, right? What do we got? Yeah. One more trade, one more trading day, right? One more trading day, yeah. holiday uh, after weekend, yeah. people are in good spirits. Are they? Well, I don't know. Everyone was saying, you know, there's a bear market <laughs> rally that's kind of been like the... You know, topic they, they feel a little better the after the after this week. Uh, yeah. If you certainly were long the market, given yeah. the given the gains we've had, and no doubt about that. Given the inflation print, may be able to afford hot dogs a little better for the yes. barbecues. Costco so. didn't raise the price of that hot dog combo, uh, but there is a lot of talk about bear market rallies. I mean, Mike Santoli has all the history on them, uh, and <laughs> there's plenty head. of them. In there's his plenty head. of them, and that is sort of another question as to whether we're. That's what we're in the midst of right now. And whether it's sustainable. And obviously next week we go into June, a new month, a new fresh start. But to Carl's point, the inflow numbers looked good, about $20 billion in inflows, which was the highest, I think, going all the way back to 10 weeks or so. But bond outflows were $5.8 billion. But the biggest inflow asset class was actually cash, which could suggest that people were still looking for those traditional safe havens and looking for areas where they could hunker down. Yeah, a B of A, uh, Michael Hartnett this morning, who's been calling for a correction for uh, more than a year today, says um, summer uh, rally bandwagon is growing. Uh, more clients potentially trying to position ahead of what they argue may be a Jackson Hole pivot. This idea of a Fed pause later in the year is one thing that uh, bulls are hanging their hat on. He says we'd fade rallies above 4,200, but we're not in a rush which I thought was interesting, too. That is interesting, especially as you see analysts this week talking about kind of how the recent price action may be overestimating at least the how soon a recession risk is. Is it further in the future or are stocks really pricing in that full recession now, I think, is a, a debate that we'll be having later this hour with some of our big market guests. But still, $8 trillion drawdown in stocks since January. That's, that's not nothing. Rally, yeah. It is amazing the whipsawing. We're you know, worried about, I mean, oh, too much growth, mm-hmm. inflation, now recession. Now everybody's talking about the Fed already taking its foot off, or I should say, actually not uh, 
not tightening for as long as we thought they would. Uh, I, yeah. it's, it's very hard to understand it. And listen, by the way, many of the asset managers I speak to continue to be, in their words, uh, confused as you take a look for the, for, the, uh, for the moves so far this year. 35%. Is that right? Still pretty big. That's a number. That's the right number? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we started the week with J.P. Morgan's annual shareholder meeting, the first one since before the pandemic, and we got some pretty optimistic outlook from Chairman and CEO Jamie Dimon there, where he talked about, you know, this is really storm clouds. This isn't a tsunami. This isn't a hurricane that we're looking at, and that's in the event of a recession. And then they raised some guidance for net interest income, which sent all sorts of rate-sensitive stocks higher for the week. Um, and then you kind of heard some of those comments echoed yesterday at Morgan Stanley's annual meeting, uh, which I tuned into, where James Gorman kind of said the same thing, that the consumer is still really strong. There's, a, of course, a recession risk out there, but we're not seeing this as just this catastrophic event on the horizon. Yeah, the, con- the consumer is interesting. A lot of the bank CEOs, I think it was Moynihan who said uh, consumer you know, account balances are multiples of what they were yeah. pre-COVID. Uh, consumer spent... Uh, 10% more in the first two weeks of May than they spent in the prior two weeks of May last year. Mm. So this idea that you've got excess saving, uh, that's going to last you a while, but I don't know if you noticed in this print this morning, saving rate goes to 4.4 uh, from 5. So we are definitely Depleting. Uh, burning the wood in the, uh, in the oven. Yeah. It's a matter of how long that's going to last. Yeah, and there was also a statistic this morning about how the higher gas prices are actually starting to affect demand for gas. And that um, if you exclude 2020 and the COVID shutdowns, they actually saw the lowest level of gas demand going back to 2013 as a result of these higher gas prices, which of course, I think it was last week, every single state surpassed $4 uh, a gallon. So that's, that's actually starting to take effect. Now we'll see if the weekend, the Memorial Day weekend, historically a big travel weekend, actually changes things, but uh, at least you're starting to kind of see some data points that suggest that higher gas prices are, are really starting to change consumer habits. I'm happy to report that I still have a sense as to how much the NASDAQ is down for the year. And so when I saw 34.96%, it was wrong. It was, it's 24.96. We've corrected it now. Just in case you thought it was an even worse year. Uh, and of course, we have come back. We have been uh, at the beginning of this week far lower than that, but never down 35%. Right. Phew. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, think close to 30 from the highs, but right. uh, year to date, uh, likely, hopefully we don't get to those numbers. No. Uh, as we talked about the consumer, it's another ro- a wild ride for retail today as we wrap up a busy earnings week for the sector. Courtney Reagan joins us with some of the good news, uh, Courtney, and some of the blowups. Yeah, Carl, it's so hard to find one narrative, really, that sums up all of retail or really even all of the consumer because we're not even seeing consistency among retail subsectors. No retailer, of course, is going to be exempt from inflationary costs or changing consumer preferences. But each is anticipating and then managing all those variables a little differently. Dollar Tree, Dollar General, and TJX all issued strong starts to the year and upbeat forecasts. But it's not as clear as to just point to momentum for retailers catering to more inflation-sensitive consumers because competitors like Walmart and Target, Ross stores, just hearing from Big Lots, and even Gap with its Old Navy business took down annual guidance after underestimating some of those first quarter pressures. To be clear, some of those certainly more on the corporate side than the consumer side. But then we've got Williams-Sonoma. Alta, Ralph Lauren, Canada Goose, Nordstrom and Macy's issuing pretty upbeat forecasts going forward. And then Wayfair, 
Amazon, Sally Beauty, Kohl's, American Eagle, and Abercrombie, all looking at the balance of the year with a little bit more concern. And I would argue all of those names sort of play in the same space. So some retailers are taking more prudent approaches to forecasting, and they do that often even after strong starts to the year. It's just sort of in their DNA. And some analysts are putting Dick's Sporting Goods in that camp, saying, look, so far things are good. They're just being cautious and conservative going forward. Others have deeper wounds. Gap Inc. is quantifying the full year cost to fix the Old Navy business and the incremental cost of things like air freight and commodity costs that's going to take time to correct. I, I think really the only conclusion that, that we could draw across the consumer landscape is just a risky proposition if you're only trying to paint everyone with one broad brush. You have to do your homework. You have to look at the nuances. And just because a retailer put up poor results doesn't mean that the consumer was bad. It might have just been a mismanagement of the business. And the question is, is can they fix that as the balance of the year moves forward? And can they do it before consumer preferences change again? Back over to you. Yeah, it's, I mean, the conversation, some of these gap numbers, Courtney, uh, the guidance, uh, the inventory, the, the gross margin miss of uh, nine points, I mean, a lot of that is going to feed the argument yeah. that you just had the wrong stuff. Uh, and the, even as they argue, yes. uh, you know, as we said yesterday regarding uh, Macy's, people shopping for certainly apparel in much different ways. Absolutely, Carl. That's a great point. And if you look at Gap specifically to your point and the old Navy division, that's responsible for about half of profit. And they had warned, Gap had warned a couple weeks ago that revenue was going to be lower than anticipated. And they more or less alluded to the fact that problems were at old Navy. Well, now we have the details. And just to your point, they kind of missed the mark on fashion. They didn't have the right stuff in the store for what consumers were wanting to buy. And you know that Old Navy skews a little bit more casual, right? It's more active. They sell a good amount of kids and baby. And the CEO told me yesterday that's just not what customers were buying. We just weren't in the right position with the fashion that we had. They also sort of over-indexed in some of their extended sizes in the store. So they miss, missed on that mark, too. And the inventory was up 34%. And, they, they've just they've had a lot of execution issues there on top of the changing consumer preferences also not matching up with what they did have there. So there's a lot of work to be done on that one. Courtney, thanks. Uh, Courtney Reagan talking about the wild week we've thanks. had in retail. Yeah, remember, uh, important to remember, many of these uh, retailers are still uh, generating a decent amount of cash um, and cashes king. Cashes king. Especially. My old friend uh, David Berman, friend of the show, of course, who comes on. Uh, with us every so often on retail points out that he's got 15 retailers now that he tracks with cash greater than 30% of their market cap, um, which you know tends to be a, a not necessarily a negative in a market where you might even see private equity activity, yeah, which is one, although Kohl's, who knows, but you know that is something that they can look at. Private equity always gravitates towards retail, even though the track record is not particularly good. I was going to say they've been burned in the past, but I wonder if kind of the dispersion in earnings creates opportunities for M&A. And that's what I was going to just ask you about, either on the sponsor side or the strategic side, as companies look to kind of beef up their capabilities in order to weather these inflation issues, these supply chain issues, these freight costs. Uh, you know, you'd think that in this environment, bigger would be better. But so far, a lot of the, the processes are, are kind of yeah, and, it, and I mean, you listen to Courtney, it's no wonder people can be somewhat confused because it's yes. such a wide range of outcomes uh, at this point. Obviously, start off with Walmart and Target both sort of coloring things in a fairly negative fashion and Amazon, uh, but a lot of sort of mixed picture at this point, which does lead to a sort of 
an inability. But maybe you want to look at cash flow. Maybe you want to look at cash and just sort of focus on that. Also been an interesting week, guys. You know, we should point out the 10-year was, what, above three not very long ago. Yeah. Now where are we? Two seven, two six. Um, there's been a big move in bonds. So if you were lucky enough to have bought them not even that long ago or munis, you've actually done quite well. Mortgage rates also yeah. ticking down a little bit. Yeah. yeah as, as we pointed out, I remember that B of A call targeting two and a quarter. Where we're not there. No. But moving in the right direction. That, that call was made, I think, above three. And people kind of said, what are you thinking? Yeah. Uh, but more and more evidence uh, is, uh, I think, Fed, peak Fed funds pricing was three, four. And it's come down to two, nine. So definitely a lot of traders reading some tea leaves. When we come back, we'll talk a lot more about what we might expect on these last couple sessions of the month. We'll talk to Citi's U.S. Uh, chief equity strategist on what they see ahead for some volatile markets as they downgrade U.S. equities a bit. And uh, got some decent action in tech today with Dell, Zscaler, and Autodesk. Don't go away. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You know, I just missed it. I missed the, I missed that, that great sound from me back <laughs> on the street. We haven't done it in a long time. Remember every so often we would check, of course, on the status of SPACs. Still in terms of at least, I'm not sure how important you would uh, uh, claim the asset classes, so to speak, any longer, of course, having gone through a significant period of speculation and then, well, the bubble burst. In fact, probably the first, before the SaaS companies, before any of the high multiple tech names, uh, it was SPACs that got beaten up first, and that continues to be the case. Journal Story Today talking about a number of them that did deals that already can't get going uh, or can't get going concern letters. Um, but we'd like to take a look at how many are out there still looking for deals because it's truly a staggering number. Uh, 591 SPACs with $160 billion in proceeds are still looking for that deal that deal that's going to work, that deal that's going to keep the SPAC above 10 bucks, the deal that's going to bring all that promise and excitement and, of course, riches to your sponsors. Now, remember, we've had the SEC all over this sector, but ne never actually having done anything, as far as I can remember, Leslie, maybe, like, yeah. Gensler's talked a lot. Well, actually, David. Tell me. Um, mark your calendar. Yes. Because Tuesday is the date that the comment period ends for those new rules surrounding SPACs. So one of the big reasons why you've had such a chill in the market is because underwriters could be facing such a, a greater liability for underwriting SPACs if, for example, some of those financial projections turn out to be wrong, these new rules would make underwriters much more on the hook for those yeah. as opposed to kind of just saying, oh, we underwrote the deal like we would with a traditional IPO and, you know. That was, I mean, there are so many different things. We talked so often about this for such a long period of time. Of course, I think early on to our credit in terms of the the, the 
the fact that the sponsor uh, and the shareholders did not have the same incentives in any way, no. uh, and so many other things, including, as Leslie points out, the projections that often came as a result of the fact that it wasn't a traditional underwriting, uh, and, and therefore um, you could say anything you wanted, including, hey, we're going to do this number in 2027. It's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, no longer the case. The IPO pipeline, there's still 180 SPACs waiting to go public. Uh, by the way, so far this year, 68 SPACs have raised $11.6 billion. And even though we didn't weigh in specifically on SPACs, what's a day without a tweet from Elon Musk? And I mean, it is 917. We haven't mentioned him. Wow. So there he is. I think we get a, a He's answering for somebody. That. And listen, good point. Based on past experience, 12 to 18 months, companies that are inherently negative cash flow value destroyers need to die so they can stop consuming resources. You kind of heard the same thing. Law from, of the jungle. What was it, Sequoia this week? Yeah. That issued that warning to their portfolio companies and others. I think it was like 250 portfolio companies on a call saying, conserve your cash. We're in for a crucible-like moment in Silicon Valley. So it seems like sentiment there. Yeah, it's actually a really good slide deck. It's like 52 slides. Uh, I tweeted it out last night. There's a lot, lot, lot of worry in there. A warning, a lot of worry. Crucible moment is what they're telling a lot of their founders over at Sequoia. Take another look at the futures. Uh, looks like we're gonna obviously start green, uh, try to finish green for the week. And as for the month, Dow needs about 340 points uh, to break even. Don't go anywhere. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As the tape looks pretty good this morning, take a look at some of the, uh, actually Zscaler, Marvell, Autodesk are all uh, earning stories today, not doing too badly. Dell's uh, up there as well, but watch Pinduoduo as we keep our eye on China Tech and Tesla back to 723. The opening bell's coming up in just under nine minutes. Welcome back. Joining us this morning with some perspective on the market, Cities U.S. equity strategist Scott Croner. Scott, welcome back. Great to have you on this Friday. Hey, good morning. Thanks. Uh, great to be here. Uh, interesting note today. Um, I'd love to get you to clarify uh, your recession risk view, because you say a U.S. recession is not your base case. But then you say that equities uh, typically peak shortly before the start of a recession. This time it may happen earlier because we have elements of a deflating bubble. So what is what is recession risk right now? So, you know, our, our economic view would be that there's probably a 50-50 chance of a recession in the 2023 time frame. Uh, so we've been modeling out, you know, uh, a base case that assumes a soft landing scenario for the S&P, which has enabled us to be somewhat more constructive for the better part of this year, time back to our you know, longstanding 4,700 target for the, for the market. Do we think the 10-year gets back to 320? 
Um, the house view here is that the 10 year um, by the end of the year falls back towards the 245 level. I would say importantly though, we're keeping an eye on nominals as well as real yields. Real yields have nudged a little bit above zero. Um, the point we've been making on this that I'd like to stress uh, is, is that as real yields move above zero, in our view, the uh, connection to price action begins to lessen, particularly for the growth side of the market. Mm. Um, I'm curious, you know, we have the banner there saying that Citi downgraded U.S. stocks to neutral and you believe that uh, stocks could peak before we reach a recession. Do you think they already have peaked at this point uh, if we're looking, say, into 2023 for potential recession, even if it is a soft landing? Right. So I'm going to turn the discussion around a little bit. So our, our, our global strategists have taken the U.S. down to a, a neutral stance, okay? Um, from my view, um, looking more specifically at U.S. equities, again, the way we're thinking about this is that the bulk of the rising rate impact has been felt on valuations already. It's been a particular issue for the growth side of the market, more so than the value side of the market. What we're still concerned with here, though, particularly as we move into the Q2 reporting period, is that we'll begin to see um, C-suites begin to lower guidance, if you will, perhaps for the second half of this year, but we still think the 23 earnings outlook becomes the big swing item in how we think about recession or not. What I would highlight in our work looking historically, and this is, I think, very important to keep uh, an eye on, is that historically, earnings have risen while the Fed is actually tightening and raising Fed, the Fed funds rate. Essentially, the Fed's responding to strong economic activity and earnings respond to the strong economic activity. Historically, it's once the Fed actually begins to stop raising that you begin to see the earnings risk, if you, if, if you will, to the market. Again, that would sync with weakening economic con, uh, conditions and activity. That's interesting because I've heard so much about just the uncertainty of rates and, and the challenge that poses for investors. Uh, but it sounds like you're saying that it's not so much the, the actual delta and, and rates increasing, but it's once they do actually reach a level of stability that then you start to see more of a negative reaction on the earnings part of the equation. That's mostly how it's played out. And so it kind of comes back to the same you know, issue that we're contending with in the market to your earlier question. The market has been quick to, 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 to price in recession risk. And we've been highlighting that it actually is pricing in recession risk, but not the actuality of a recession itself. So let's frame this. Our, our base case recession scenario had been 3650 on the S&P. Again, my official year-end target is 4700, which we'll call soft landing. So as you as the market, you know, sold off below 4000 within mid-single digits of that let's call it recession scenario, you you began to look at a risk reward to a a um, soft landing scenario bias uh, on the side of, of reward, if you will. I think that kind of helps to put some perspective on the move we've seen over the past several days. And then also what you have to consider, though, is that we're still essentially discounting recession risk for a recession possibility that's many, many months out. So um, in between all of that, we have to expect continued volatility. But again, our point here would be the bulk of the rising rate influence priced in the focus begins to shift more maniacally to the earnings side and earnings expectation side of, of the discussion. Hey, finally, Scott, we're going to get the bell here in about a minute, but I do want to ask you, you know, core PCE was a big headline today. H how do you see 
inflation moderating, especially given some of the risks around food, which actually Jane Frazier uh, told us this week from Davos. Well, so it's going to be depending which inflation measure for which commodity, okay? And so the, the grain segment of the commodities market has been obviously you know, very strong of late for the reasons that you're suggesting. Energy side, you know, the house view here is that oil prices begin to roll over. We're now beginning to see some economic data that's coming in a touch below it, expectations, supporting the view that uh, inflation is beginning to plateau, potentially roll over as economic activity plateaus and shows some, some signs of rolling over. The market's been pretty clear about pricing in um, a Fed funds futures curve that's suggesting uh, Fed funds, you know, begin to move, continue to move higher into the first part of 2023. So the point here is that as you begin to see inflation um, indicators plateau or begin to weaken, you take some of the pressure off um, the view that the Fed's going to have to tighten further and higher and longer. And that sets up for the relief valve in the market that, again, I think helps to explain what, we're, what we've been seeing over the past few days. Scott, thanks for that. Good to see you. Have a great weekend. Pleasure. Scott Croner joining us from City as we get the opening bell today. At the big board, it's a Hawks Acquisition Corp. And at the NASDAQ Fitness Drink Celsius celebrating its fifth listing anniversary. You know, talking about inflation in the consumer, we'll keep our eye on retail. We haven't mentioned Costco. Actually beats by a couple of cents. You mentioned uh, the hot dog <laughs> soda combo. It's interesting that, that Costco monitors social media and they saw the rumors floating around that they were going to raise the price. But as we said in our documentary, I don't know how many years ago, they will never change $1.50. They will never go above $1.50. Their third-party vendor tried to do it and they moved the whole operation in-house. Well, don't they also, you know, take... So, they make a loss on their rotisserie chicken as well because they want to get you in the store and get you to buy the chicken and buy the hot dogs, and then they can make their money elsewhere. But the types of things that people were buying at Costco did kind of have that same theme that we've been hearing from retailers recently. It was, it was jewelry. It was not office supplies, which is, of course, what we've seen recently with more people working from home. It was kiosks. It was just things that were kind of part of that same reopening trade that we've been talking about for a year and a half now. Um, reading through the call, some other interesting things. By the way, pre-tax income was up 11% for the quarter. The number is $1.827 billion, uh, comparing to $1.65 billion for the year-ago period. Uh, tax rate about 25%, so right around what it's been. They opened four fewer um, warehouses than they thought, 14 so far this year in the fiscal year. But interestingly, two of the four are impacted by supply chain issues related to electrical equipment terms of their inability to open those warehouses. But to your point, Leslie, I think people will look through this to sort of get a sense for where the buying is taking place and how it's changed uh, as people have fully re-engaged in uh, going out into the world. Well, look at Ulta uh, today. Uh, unbelievable. 630 beats 445. Uh, comps up 18. We were looking for eight. Uh, Jeffries today goes from 400 to 475. Uh, CS also goes to 475. And they raised the guide. Uh, they see comps now up six to eight. Prior was three to four. People want to look good. Either, uh, they're going somewhere. Yeah. And they, it's not makeup's now above 2019 levels in terms of sales for them. So that does huh. show that they are now seeing that growth. That well, we called it a two-year stack. Now it's almost a three-year, but showing growth. Well, I guess it makes sense if you're going to events, if you're going to weddings, if you're not only concerned about half of your face with wearing a mask, you need to buy new lipstick, you need to buy new, uh, I don't know, foundation, hair supplies, what have you, because people want to emerge and that has pent up demand.
That's your number one S&P gainer right there. Uh, Ulta Beauty up uh, almost 9.5%. A uh, lot of discussion on Squawk this morning, speaking of going out, about the movies yeah. um, and Top Gun this weekend. Got our first look at Indiana, the new Indiana Jones yesterday uh, from Paramount. So watch Paramount and watch IMAX, which, by the way, I think it was Rosenblatt went to a buy uh, earlier in the week because even though it's only 1% of screens, they actually punch way above their weight on opening weekend, getting like 10% of uh, revenue because movies, certainly the kinds of movies that they're now releasing in theaters are the kinds of movies you would rather see in a theater than on your home TV. You gonna go? Uh, to Top Gun? Yeah. Oh, of course. You are, okay. But I'm, I'm gonna wait until we can see it in IMAX, to be honest, mm. wouldn't you? I guess I, so. Yeah. yeah, they said on Squawk Box that it was supposed to have a $100 million weekend, which would be Tom Cruise's highest grossing weekend for any of Tom Adjusted for inflation? Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> Good question. Good question. Nobody promotes like Cruise. Nobody promotes Nobody. like Cruise. Nobody. The man's <laughs> relentless. Um, guys, uh, speaking of relentless and Elon Musk uh, comes to mind, of course. Uh, Twitter, what's a day without mentioning it? A couple of little news items here. Not related to that strike suit, by the way. Uh, the SEC finally releases a letter that was sent on April 4th. Remember the initial filing in Twitter from Musk? It was a 13G. It seemed to have come late. And then, of course, we questioned why it was a G at all, especially given only a handful of weeks later he already had a deal to buy the company. Um, well, the SEC is kind of asking those same questions, or at least did back on April 4th. Uh, you know, advises the conclusion you were reached and the date of the event and basically why you didn't tell us sooner because you seem to have reached a number that would have required a reporting sooner and why the G is not a D and on from there. So there's that. No response from Musk, though. This is just a letter that was released. And again, uh, April 4th is when it's dated. And then for Twitter itself, Egon Durbin uh, going to remain a busy man. Interestingly, he didn't get enough votes to stay on the company's board. Remember, they had their annual meeting. Um, but the company's going to keep him anyway. Now, Durbin's been a busy man. I talked about him yesterday because, of course, he, along with Michael Dell, were the main owners of VMware and the main negotiators for VMware, uh, so to speak, given they combined on 50% of the company with Octan of uh, Broadcom. Uh, Durbin also sits on, I think, six other boards. And that was the reason why many of the proxy advisory firms told those who vote to vote against him. And that's why I didn't get enough votes to stay on the board. However, the board has determined not to accept his resignation in connection with the agreement. Uh, the board considered the recommendation of the nominating committee and everything else, but said that basically um, they still feel like um, in light of his overall contributions to the board, they're confident he has sufficient capacity to fulfill his fiduciary duties. He's an important uh, part of that board. He's a pretty tough guy. Durbin. You want some tough guys on the board right now in case you do go to litigation, which, again, still seems more likely than not at some point. You end up in court here. Um, and interesting, they chose to keep him. And he said, OK, I'll stay. And he's a, I mean, he's an associate. He's friendly with Elon Musk, at least according to the, yes. if you read the merger background, they, they clearly had a lot of dialogue throughout the process along with Jack Dorsey. But I do wonder if the overboarding issue is less of an issue for private companies than public companies. Obviously, you've got ISS. That that's a you know that's a key sticking point. If you're on yeah. six boards, can you really devote the attention to? I, I don't know. I mean, company? the only other I always I always kid Maffei about it at Liberty because he's on like eight or nine boards. It's ridiculous. Um, it would seem, although he's a very capable guy. If, if I could think of anybody who might be able to, and he's kind of you know 
kind of all over the place. Maybe he can focus for 20 minutes on everything the way he needs to. I'm talking about Maffei, not Durbin. I don't know Durbin as well. Um, but Twitter shares just down a little bit. Um, haven't heard anything from uh, Musk on the, in terms of the extra, ec- the additional equity that he's going to have to come up with because he canceled that margin loan. Trying to determine where things, remember there was a, some reports about a preferred Wondering whether that's still out there. As we said yesterday, Leslie, there are plenty of people who still want to invest. So there is potentially a, a, a pool of equity available to him. But um, we shall see. And so how much easier is it to just roll your equity over as he's been right. supposedly while Leeds doing? Oh, well, Leeds doing that and Dorsey might do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we expunged the idea that Musk could buy more in the open market, at least for now. Yes. Given his... He did sign that NDA, as far as I'm aware. So as far as we're aware. As far as well, we're there's aware. also that class action lawsuit today as well. Yeah, I discount most which of those. There are a lot of class action lawsuits. Yeah, I discount most of those down. strikes. It's, it's like, all right, they have the same arguments too, as kind of what the SEC is saying with regard to disclosure rules, the G versus the D. Do they file it late? Um, and then also he just did. the idea. Of, they, he did. Um, and then the idea of saying that the the buyout was temporarily on hold, which had the effect of sending Twitter shares We are shares still on down. hold, right? We are still on hold? We are. I mean, you're on hold. He hasn't said we're not on hold any longer. Or he hasn't come out with a tweet that says no hold. In theory, all deals are on hold until they're closed. <laughs> That's true. And that may be what the board's waiting for. And, you know, you go through HSR, you get the vote from Twitter shareholders. If he doesn't complete at some point, then you sue him. Yeah. Although, again, there have been plenty of people arguing that he's already in breach. Why not just start? And with less financing risk, given that he's said he's going to put forth more equity, theoretically, that should diminish at least some of the risk that was out there before when he did have that margin loan in place. And, which is why Twitter shares were up yesterday, up a little bit today as well. Of course, Carl, along with the broader market yeah, right now. Uh, first crack above 4,100 here since uh, May 6th or so. As for Tesla, as you say, David, $100 off of the low. Uh, 620 was the low back on uh, May 24th. Interesting, though, some coverage of Ford and the F-150 Lightning, which is now officially the first pickup, that's an EV, to actually get delivered. Uh, got delivered to a guy who actually had a reservation for a Cybertruck, ended up getting a, a refund on that, because it's obviously, he said, whatever pickup becomes an EV first, that's the one I'm buying. Uh, Bloomberg wrote him up yesterday, and that's going to be the F-150. So we'll see how, maybe we'll start seeing those on the, the road. Street, yes. Yeah, and there was also the Toyota news that they cut uh, their global production plan for June, citing COVID-19 lockdown in Shanghai. Uh, they do still expect to produce 9.7 million vehicles, but there is a possibility of a lower estimate there. So they reduced their plan output for June by 50,000 vehicles to 800,000. But again, this is just a theme that we've been seeing, the, the overall impact of those lockdowns on, on these multinational companies. Shares a gap. We talked about it. Courtney obviously reported on it earlier, down about 7% right now. Do we have a long-term gap, though? Because remember the success that this stock had right after the pandemic began? And was it 20 or 21? An enormous gainer. Now, like so many others, down. There it is. That, that kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Now down 70, wow. uh, 70% for the year for the last 12 months. And you can see what it's done over the last five years as well. Only a roughly three and a half, three point eight billion dollar market value. They they kind of got their sizing wrong. Yes, with Old Navy. Yes. But a bright spot for them was Banana Republic. And I kid you not, I keep getting all these targeted ads for baby clothes that they just started launching. It is like eighty dollars for a toddler dress. I mean, the pricing of I mean, it's like the same as what they charge for adult dresses. So I, I do wonder how 
that will play out. Although they are cute clothes. Are they cute? I haven't bought any. You haven't done it? justify, you know. Mm. I mean, What happened wearing. to Baby Gap? Is that no longer? Is no, that no a longer? Thing. Is it a thing? Definitely so? a thing, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, I know Old Navy was down 22. Comps down Oof. 22 at Old Navy. Gap down 11. Thank goodness for Banana. Uh, which was up uh, 27. They actually had some comments about inventory and inflation and consumer. Take a listen. We entered the first quarter anticipating a slowdown as we lapsed the impact of the stimulus of the prior year. However, we began to experience a more profound weakness during the quarter at Old Navy and to a lesser degree at Gap North America, as those brands were most exposed to the rising inflationary environments impacting our lower income customer. Accordingly, we have taken a more cautious consumer outlook and are moderating our top-line growth expectations as reflected in our revised guidance. Uh, not just Gap, of course, today. Uh, keep your eye on American Eagle, uh, which is off the opening low, but still down almost 8%. And then Big Lots was the other uh, blow up today. That has not recovered uh, quite as well done, almost 15%. It was a surprise loss, revenue miss. Inventory up almost 50 yeah. Inventory up almost 50 and comps down 17. They said trends materially slowed in April, although we keep hearing from macroeconomics uh, desks, uh, Ethan Harris at B of A, who said this is not surprising. We knew there would be a wallet shift from goods to services, and they're not lowering their consumption forecast. It just in this case, the retailers are on the wrong end of the mix. Yeah, it feels Darwinian almost in that those uh, consumer-facing businesses that are a more easily able to pivot their inventory and their supply chain are able to weather this just so much better. Um, and that's why you're seeing the divergence in, in all of the different reactions to earnings. And, and a lot of it, too, has to do with forecast and this idea that many, many businesses weren't planning on this inflation lasting as long as it has. And now it's become clear that it's kind of here to stay, even though, of course, today's macro read uh, was a little bit brighter than it has been. Um, but still, it's a, it's a matter of kind of how you adjust that and how quickly you can without it really, really steeply affecting your margins, onshoring and And what's ironic costs. is that, you remember when supply chain was a problem, they got enough inventory and right. they double ordered and they yes. brought in a ton of clothes and now they have too much. So it, it, was, it was almost impossible to get that balance just right. And now that, that's the discounting is going to be the huge story of the summer. And, and, and it's not just the retail industry. There are any number of other industries were you know similar kinds of things including with chips obviously as we all know and trying to get access to them and then over ordering so to speak um guys before we go and speaking of sort of well chips to a certain extent uh been a good week for michael dell i did want to take a look at shares of uh, dell because of course yesterday we were talking about in fact i just mentioned him as well selling his 40 percent stake uh, or ownership of vmware uh to broadcom at quite a significant premium I mean, Michael is just, he's rich, getting richer <laughs> all the time. And Dell Technologies had a very strong quarter. Uh, revenues were up 16%. They, they said growth across infrastructure solutions, client solutions, uh, generated, by the way, first uh, quarter operating income of $1.6 That was 57% above uh, the year ago. And what they also say is record non-GAAP, non-GAAP operating income, $2.1 That was up 21%. Very positive response there. Uh, Warren Buffett chose to go with HPE. Mm-hmm. Dell's not bad um, and hasn't been for quite some time. Uh, has been performing strongly. The stock is, let's call it, flat over the last year. And in this market, flat is good. But, uh, these, these, this stock price is helping lift HPE as well. It is. Up 5%. It is. HPQ, not related, up 
6%. Yep. So. Yeah. And by the way, we should, Zscaler and Autodesk, a couple of the other success stories today in tech, up about 7 and 6% respectively. Apple, 10% off of the uh, May lows. Uh, so we're up uh, 4,100. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. 300 points, Carl. Remember, we were 38.10 six days ago, and the S&P 500, 4,100 sitting right at right now. That's a remarkable rally, 7% or so. I just want to show you the sectors because this is a very good indication that people are trying to catch up. The consumer discretionary is the worst performing group of the year. It's the best one today here. We've seen Ulta, Best Buy, all the travel stocks are up. Tech's another weak performer, but all the mega caps are trading up. Industrials have been uh, underperforming for a while now. They're outperforming today. And the number one sector of the year, which is energy stocks, is the one that's underperforming. So here's a lot of classic uh, mean reversion. Gives you an idea how oversold consumer discretionary uh, was right now. As for where the, uh, we are right now in this market rally. So we're up about 7% from the low of last Friday. That was 38.10, as I recall. Uh, why, is, why is this happening? Well, Interest rates are lower. And the, the main story is Fed fund futures are showing some kind of pause in the fall. Uh, there's a lot of debate about how long that'll last or what it means. But this whole thing today, uh, a lot on the bull argument uh, rose and fell on the whole PCE story today. And the number came in just the way they wanted it, in line with expectations. The core PCE at 4.9 percent. So now the bulls have a narrative saying, look, core PCE is peaking. It's got two consecutive months now where we're declining. They're trying to put together a narrative, the bulls, that say peak inflation's here and now we have data points to support this. Uh, this may be true. It doesn't mean the Fed's going to take its foot off the, 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 the accelerator or the brake, I'd rather. Uh, but I think the important thing is at least they have some kind of data point. If this would have been a five handle today, I think we wouldn't have been this kind of, we wouldn't have seen this kind of uh, rally that we've had. Uh, it's still way too early to declare victory. Uh, on retail, I, I, I hope you listen to Courtney Reagan, who I pay very close attention to, and I share her confusion on how to create a narrative around what's happening. Just look today. Ulta Beauty, strong demand. American Eagle, demand below expectations. Costco, lower margins and raising prices, even though they have amazing numbers, 92% renewal rate. And Gap, higher costs, deeper discounts. The only constant I see here is generally struggling with high, with costs above expectations is a general theme that I have seen here. Uh, as for Costco, what can I say? One of the one of the most amazing companies out there. Just look at this earnings numbers here. 2020, $9. 2021, 11 2022, 13 2023, 14 This is consistent 10 to 15% earnings growth. And with a renewal rate, they just announced, of 92%. That is amazing. This is why the investment community loves Costco. This is about as steady as it gets in terms of overall earnings growth. And Carl, you'll take a look at the chart here. You see how this is down about 25% in the last month? This is entirely due to multiple compression. It's gone from about 45 to 35. The earnings estimates haven't gone down at all. And because of the numbers today, supportive of strong earnings, that's why you're seeing some stability uh, in Costco. But what a, what a wonderfully managed company. My gosh. Uh, Carl, back to you. All right, Bob. Thanks, uh, Bob Bassani. If you haven't already done so, uh, take an opportunity to join CNBC Pro. It's pretty fantastic. You can find out more by scanning the code on your screen. As we go to break, take a look at the bond report, see how treasuries are doing. We've got yields lower across the curve, uh, although we still have some consumer sentiment numbers coming up at the top of the hour, one of the final economic prints of the week. Don't go away. 
As the summer season is about to get underway, the Hamptons rental market is feeling a chill. Robert Frank joins us with the details. Robert, something tells me that's not about the weather because I looked at the forecast. And it's supposed to be pretty nice this weekend. Yeah, weather looking a lot better than the rental market right now. Hamptons real estate, of course, is always closely tied to the stock market. But we are seeing signs of a sharp slowdown, at least on the rental side. Rental prices falling 26 percent in the latest quarter. There has been a huge jump in supply last year and in 2020. It was almost impossible to find a rental by early May. Now brokers say there are hundreds on the market and some owners are cutting prices 30 percent or more rather than leaving them empty. More of the wealthy are traveling this summer, especially to Europe. The stock market declines, creating a more somber mood and more price sensitivity, especially at the very high end. And many of the people who used to rent in the Hamptons actually ended up buying over the past two years. So the pool of renters is now a lot smaller. But if you're still looking, you can rent this nine bedroom, 11,000 square foot waterfront home in Bridgehampton. That's on Surfside Drive. It's $300,000 a week or 1.2 million a month. Or if you're on a bit more of a budget, there is a cute little 900 square foot cottage in Southampton, only 48 grand for the summer or $23,000 for August. Home sales in the Hamptons have also slowed a bit, but their prices continue to rise with the average sale price now at 2.6 million. Carl? Uh, Robert Frank, thanks Robert. Uh, as we go to break, take a look at the markets here, trying to close out uh, the month on some uh, buying, maybe some repositioning. We of course got a long weekend. Uh, which means maybe some of that gets uh, front-loaded into today, but the Dow's up almost 300 points. Don't go away. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.